Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is a quick turnaround episode, just like I promised, um, because I wanted to continue with the review of Keeping Bees Alive by Lawrence John Connor by giving you the sample reading, which is coming up shortly here. Luckily, I recorded it a little earlier um, when the neighbor was not mowing the grass. <laughs> so if, um, that hopefully that sound quality is a little bit better than this. I have some wonderful news and some huge gratitude to put out there. At the end of the last episode, I... Oh gosh, now there's chicken commotion outside. This is really the opposite of a recording studio around here today. But anyway, um, the I had put out a request for help to get um, a digital, a type of digital recorder used for um, recording remote, uh, also in person, but especially telephone remote interviews for a podcast. And um, it was a little above my uh, price range. But I had been saving, and thanks to some incredibly generous and supportive listeners, I am proud to say that I can order that thing this weekend. Now, I have to figure out how to use it. I've been watching YouTube videos, <laughs> um, but it's in the works, and that is that is thanks to you. I want to send out my deepest gratitude to Deborah in Georgia, Michael in South Carolina, Jeffrey in North Carolina, Michelle in North Carolina, William in Minnesota, and Joan. Joan, I don't, I didn't say where you were from, but wherever you're from, I am so grateful to each one of you. Some of these generous, some of these donations were startlingly generous, and I am so touched and humbled and delighted at um, what I hope I will get to put together for you guys with the recorder that is going to be, um, that essentially was produced by Deborah, Michael, Jeffrey, Michelle, William, and Joan. I also want to send out a very special thank you to Chris Palgrave of England, who sent me um, some honey, uh, some of his uh, three hairs honey, has the most wonderful logo of, of the hair, the bunny rabbits on it, and people have just loved it. I put it on the Facebook page, and I had never tried creamed honey before and I am sold. I am so hooked on it. In fact, uh, I'm having trouble not just eating a spoonful every time I walk by the jar. So Chris, that is some amazing, incredible stuff. Um, and wow, I, I hope I get to come to England someday and um, taste more honey over there. So thank you to these incredible supporters. It is, uh, it's really thrilling it's just really thrilling, and I'm so thankful. So, without further ado, I will um, go to the reading. Actually, there is one other further ado. <laughs> it was very interesting. I posted um, this book and a link to the podcast, um, and in particular, that chart that I talked a lot about last time about the survival rates of locally raised nukes. Um, with uh, Georgia packages and other forms of obtaining bees. And this was from a um, Northern Virginia bee club that compiled these uh, numbers. Anyway, it's been really fascinating because it created just a lot of consternation among the different camps, as you can imagine. It's some people really want to discount the value of um, what it means that, you know, that a, that 
to have locally adapted bees, and I'm not talking about in the long-term evolutionary sense because we, we probably don't have those uh, anymore after um, mites and, and things, you know, cut back on so, so much genetic diversity um, in the United States. But, but it's just interesting how people react because so many people wanted to, um, well, not so many, but a few wanted to immediately jump on and say, you know, that app, this chart's silly and probably has nothing to do with anything. And um, I have to say, my experience has been kind of more like the chart <laughs> with, uh, with commercial, just general, generic commercial bees that I've tried in my yard. I've been tempted into try, attempting to overwinter them because they would be so beautiful in the summer. You know, the first year I got them and they'd have these huge, gorgeous brood nests and lots of honey. And I'd think, well, you know, maybe, gosh, maybe I can incorporate this line into my yard. But they died every time. <laughs> so, um, and, and, well, in the discussion online on the Facebook, uh, this was on the North Carolina State Association you know, they, they said, and this is true about the chart, it doesn't say exactly, you know, how much experience the various beekeepers had. There was a lot. But with a survival difference of just a basic generic package bee ranging from 20% to a survival of uh, locally produced nukes, at least in the area of New Northern Virginia with mite tolerant or resistant queens, having something closer to an 87% survival rate, there's a, there's a nice margin of error in there. And I, I still think there's some value in attempting to track down um, bees that have been selected for your area, even in the sense of, you know, weeded out several winters in a row. Um, and if the, if the bees are raised from survivors to your area, then they probably can get through a basic winter in, in your area. It's it's so, in my opinion, it's it's not about how cold it gets. I, I mean, and I don't have experience in the far north, so, but, I mean, it doesn't get that cold, relatively speaking, even here in the mountains of North Carolina, but yet the winters can have wiped out some commercial bees for me that were treated exactly the way, I should say, you know, cared for, not treated, because I, I don't use chemicals, but, um, that were cared for exactly the same way as the hives that did survive um, and have survived and knock on wood will keep on surviving. So anyway, it's just fascinating what things bring up for people and um, we'll be talking about that more in future episodes. Thank you all and here's the reading. So this is the selection from the book I've been discussing, Keeping Bees Alive. Sustainable Beekeeping Essentials by Lawrence John Connor. This is published by Wickwas Press, which is W-I-C-W-A-S dot com. Um, I, as I've said before, really like this book. I think it's good to have a copy of it. Highly recommend you get you a copy um, and maybe one for your club library. But the selection that I wanted to read as a sample also happens to be the contain a lot of the information that I have had some folks ask me recently and that is to ask me to talk about the mechanisms of mite resistance or mite um, tolerance and this is from chapter 3 I'm going to read you pieces of chapter 3 on uh, starting on page 57 so the title of the chapter mite tolerant stock the necessity of using mite tolerant bee stocks Perhaps the most compelling component in our objective to keep bee colonies alive is maintenance of mite-tolerant queens. 
Selection of mite-tolerant bee strains benefit the beekeeping industry by reducing the amount of chemical treatment needed to control varroa mites, one of the most important challenges to keeping bee colonies alive today. By using tolerant stock, I know I have reduced contamination of my hives. And when he used the words tolerant stock, he has a uh, footnote. And that is, he uses the expression tolerant because, as we all know, there is no bee strain that is completely resistant to um, mites. There was some discussion online that resistance is a scientific term that, you know, does not imply that you are... Um, immune it's it's different than immune it just means you're better at resisting it so but he's trying to be careful here in using the term tolerant stock which as i said online i i have some issues with the word tolerant because that gives the impression even though i know we're not talking about definitions here um, but it does to my ear give the impression that bees that can tolerate a high mite load which in my opinion is not the direction to select uh, because of the impact of the viruses. And so there are there were bees that could tolerate a high level of mites, but I believe most people stopped selecting toward those when we realized that the um, you know the the actual worst piece is the the viruses and you definitely don't want uh, bees that you know, have a bunch of mites to bite them and spread viruses that may be the most uh, effective way to handle the mites is the mechanisms that reduce the mite population to the lowest possible natural level. And that's what we're going to get into here. Okay, sorry, didn't get far. Back to the text. This is Dr. Connor. Over the past decade, I have worked with several different mite-tolerant queen strains. Some were naturally mated and several precious ladies don't like that, were the product of instrumental insemination. They survived above the 80% level and were productive. Their colonies did not require miticide treatments. After a decade of working with these queens and their daughters, I am convinced the use of mite-tolerant stock is the key component all beekeepers must incorporate into their apiaries to keep colonies sustainable. Of course, proper management must accompany this practice. Natural Tolerance the Varroa mite, Varroa destructor, evolved on the eastern honeybee, Apis serrana. The Asian species and the ectoparasite evolved a relationship where the mites reproduce only on developing drones. When the eastern and western honeybee species were kept in same parts of Asia, the Varroa mites infected the western bee and were extremely destructive. The mites reproduced on both drones and workers, killing large numbers of managed colonies and many feral colonies. Fortunately, a few western honeybee colonies survived and evolved tolerance mechanisms to the mites. The mites had moved on to a new host. That's our bees. Population of bees have developed several mite tolerance mechanisms without human help. These include hygienic behavior, where bees remove infected pupa from brood cells with developing mites inside, suppressed mite reproduction, so we're talking about VSH and MSR here. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> SMR. VSH and SMR. Suppressed mite reproduction is where the mites fail to produce offspring in the brood cell and grooming behavior, also called mite biting behavior, MBB. 
there is evidence that one or more genetic mutations may be involved as well. This is evolution in action, the direct consequence of exposing a species to this challenging new parasite. These traits lower mite numbers but do not eliminate them entirely from their hives. This is why I use the term tolerance rather than resistance when discussing western honeybee and varroa mites. The bees tolerate a low level of mite feeding without eliminating them entirely. Unfortunately, mite feeding increases the level of many viruses, appearing as deformed wing, crawling behavior, shiny black bees, and more. These viruses must be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. Without a mechanism of proven mite tolerance, the continuous maintenance of colonies is difficult, even when incorporated with methods of integrated pest management, IPM practices such as drone brood removal, split making, and treatment with organic compounds. This leads to the big question, why don't we have widespread widespread tolerant stocks in North American colonies? Why haven't beekeepers adapted queen lines that have natural mite tolerance? To be blunt, the beekeeping industry chose to put greater efforts into chemical controls, searching for a silver bullet that would kill these pests. Unfortunately, this led to mite resistance to chemicals, contaminated comb and honey, and a limited support of research into the development of tolerant bee stocks. So, wow, he kind of cut to the chase there at the end. He then goes into a discussion of kind of how uh, pre-Varroa um, selections were made in American honeybees aiming for higher production of honey. This is no big surprise, higher production of bees and honey because more bees, more honey. And he also goes into his um, work with the uh, Starline hybrid bee, which was a hybrid bee, he says, modeled after hybrid corn. So um, (laughs) that kind of answers his own question there about how good in the long run that is at uh, dealing with natural challenges. He then talks about, uh, he makes a mention of Seeley's observation, Tom Seeley's observation, that in wild or feral, I'm sorry, feral colonies, the typical size of a hive is quite a bit smaller than the typical commercial colony. So the average New York feral colony is about 12.4 gallons or 47 liters and it tends to be tall and cylindrical. Meanwhile commercial bees in four Langstroth deep which is what they're calling summer honey production size that's 44 gallons so gosh almost four times and uh, vertical and rectangular and then just by comparison so just by comparison the feral colony at roughly 12 and a half gallons and then one deep Langstroth is about 11.1 gallons. And then commercial bees in a double deep is about 22 gallons. So that just is a little note that's kind of interesting about the difference in the size. And as uh, Tom Seeley has talked about, that feral bees tend to swarm more often, and the mechanism of swarming creates a brood break, which does naturally knock down the mites. But I want to skip over the part about the whole hybrid breeding um, process because I, I don't think that's really the direction that... Um, he, he, he then switches and says that's not the direction that people are going anymore. Um, so, let's see, on page 66... I'm skipping over to strains of bees selected for tolerance against varroa mites. And this is for several listener questions about what are the mechanisms that go toward 
a mite tolerant bee, a more mite tolerant honeybee. The biology of mite tolerance. Since the introduction of Varroa mites into North America, there's been considerable discussion about the mites feeding on developing pupa in adult bees, on fat bodies, not the hemolyph, as long believed. Thank you, Dr. Ramsey. And the mites' ability to transmit viruses or promote their reproduction. These two factors led to the widespread death of colonies of European honey bees. Early on, the response was to treat colonies with miticides that, when used properly, controlled the mites and did not kill the bees. Unfortunately, some of these compounds were used improperly and killed bees, contaminated comb, and resulted in the mites becoming resistant. The saga has continued in the 30-plus years since the mites were introduced to the United States, with the bee industry shifting to so-called natural poisons, replacing the test tube variety. These efforts were the result of looking for lower price treatments. Unfortunately, any poison has downfalls in widespread application. Beekeepers who once yelled and testified against farmers who misused insecticides became primary abusers of pesticide label laws. They sought out cheaper and often untested formulations of chemicals with the same active ingredients and applied them at whatever rate they considered effective. Thousands of colonies were over-medicated, queens were killed, drones were sterilized, and combs were contaminated for years. Smaller colonies swarm more often. This is what I mentioned before. I, I jumped the boat. <laughs> uh, colonies in bee trees and natural nest sites tend to be much smaller than the Langstroth bee colony, with small colonies nest volumes of 42 liters or 11 gallons or 44 quarts, were compared to large colonies well, up to 44 gallons. Researchers found that the smaller colonies swarmed more often, had lower varroa levels, and had less disease and survived at a higher frequency than the bees in large colonies. Some consider this a form of natural selection, while others consider a reflection of the highly adaptive nature of bee colonies. And this is the thing where, as opposed to just letting them swarm, I'm a proponent of uh, mimicking that natural swarm process with certain um, strategic types of splits. But that's just me. Okay, Selections for, selection for mite tolerance. Reports and research studies show that honeybees use various methods of fighting back against varroa mites. We'll now review some of the key areas of parasite combat, lines from surviving queens and intentionally selected for genetic traits. The survivor stocks, Russians. Russian queens are bee lines imported from Russia by the USDA. These are the best queens found in areas of Russia where Apis mellifera and Apis serrana were managed by beekeepers in the same region dating back to the era of the Tsar. Apis serrana is the natural host of the Varroa mite, reproducing only in drone brood. So they've reached a balance. Nowadays, the Russian lines are maintained with the combined efforts of the Russian Bee Breeders Association members in cooperation with the USDA Bee Laboratory in Baton Rouge. These are not hybrids, but bred from a closed breeding population selected for tolerance to Varroa and increased honey production. As of this writing, the Russian Beekeepers Association has 17 lines of Russian genetic stock. The Russian honeybee lines were released to the industry for breeding after the USDA demonstrated the resulting colony's ability to keep varroa mites at low levels. Colonies will have some varroa mites, but at levels that do not require massive treatments of hard chemicals. Russian bee breeders recommended a treatment every 12 to 24 months using a soft chemical miticide like 
formic acid, thymol, essential oils, or hop guard. Beekeepers are advised to monitor varroa mite levels and treat hives as needed to prevent problems with viruses even when mite levels are not excessively high. VSH, the varroa sensitive hygienic, VSH queen stock, is another survivor line. Queens from Louisiana, Michigan, and elsewhere were collected after the initial decimation by the varroa mites of the late 1980s and early 90s. These were queens in untreated colonies that were alive when more than 99% of untreated colonies died. These colonies provided the queens and drones used to produce the VSH stock produced at the Honeybee Breeding and Physiology Laboratory in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The sole criteria of selection was that the queens and bees survived when all others died. Other traits were incorporated later primarily because beekeepers did not like the initial colonies. Saskatraz. Oh, there's a little picture here. John Harbo developed the VSH strain from survivor stocks. In retirement, he and his wife Carol continued to upgrade the stock and produce breeder queens. And they mentioned the Harbo website. And if I'm not mistaken, um, he is also involved in the ankle biter breeding. Okay, Saskatraz. The Meadow Ridge Enterprise Limited of Saskatoon, Canada, selects breeder queens after two or three years of evaluation using natural mating in isolated regions. Queens are evaluated for several traits, especially varroa tolerance, VSH activity, high honey production, and wintering ability. Seven different Saskatraz families are maintained for genetic diversity. Daughter queens are open mated by Oliverez apiaries in Orland, California. Specific trait selected stocks. Minnesota hygienic queens. Bees detect and remove diseased or mite infested pupa from sealed brood. This strain of hygienic bees was developed at the University of Minnesota by Dr. Marla Spivak from bees at the University Apiary, primarily starline hybrid colonies and their daughter colonies. Spivik selected for a high degree of hygienic behavior effective against varroa mite and diseases of the brood, such as American fowl brood or chalk brood. An area of sealed brood was killed with liquid nitrogen. The percentage of cells uncapped and removed by the bees at 24 and 48 hours were recorded. This trait utilizes two behaviors acting in synergy, the uncapping of dead or diseased cells and the removal of the pathogen or mite along with the pupa disrupts the disease and the mite life cycle. Spivik supplied the stock to bee breeders to help increase tolerance in the country's honeybee population. There are two suppliers of the stock. So, um, listener Jeff, this you had been asking about how are these, I believe you were asking about how these traits are determined and selected for and so that was what I was going to tell you is um, that they often they'll use a can of liquid nitrogen and kill a patch of healthy brood um, in each hive put them all back together and then count in that patch of killed brood in 24 hours what percentage is removed and then they use those as uh, the the breeders and I just want to say, okay, everybody who remembers my little rant, well, not a rant, but the rabbit hole about this whole uncapping, capping behavior and what it looks like. Well, wouldn't you know, on page 70, there is a picture and it's titled Seal Brood Being Uncapped, Evidence of Hygienic Behavior. And it is the shape 
it is what I was talking about. It, it, it is the shape of the little rim around the edge that I was noticing. And um, anyway, that was very exciting to me. Okay. Um, mite biting behavior. These are also known as um, ankle biters. And I just got a few of these this year for the first time. Tested them out. Mite biting behavior. The bees groom each other to remove and damage the mites. As noted, the varroa mite evolved on the eastern honeybee Apis serrana, where it only reproduces on the drone brood. So notice that that host and pest have reached a um, agreement, you know, that they will kind of tolerate each other. And that, that balance is in my opinion, the best we can hope for. Okay, back. In addition, the eastern honeybees groom each other, removing varroa mites off the bodies of their sisters and biting the parasites, causing damage or removing their body shell, antenna, and legs. This eventually kills the mite via dehydration and exposure to pathogens. This behavior was utilized by Dr. Greg Hunt from Purdue University to develop the mite-biting behavior, a.k.a. Purdue Leg Chewers. Stock has been released to interested queen producers and leaders of bee clubs throughout the Midwest. The Purdue stock makes more honey than the other test groups. The bees have increased winter survival and honey production as well as reducing the cost of replacing dead colonies. The stock also increased profits from honey sales. Grooming is a trait that is effective against the varroa bomb, a condition that occurs in late summer or fall as colonies collapse from high mite loads. Once a hive has been weakened, two things happen. It's thought that the bees from other colonies rob the colony and pick up mites that are carried back to the colony. And this is one reason why uh, Tom Seeley stopped. I think he's not using the varroa bomb as much as robber lures. Um, let's see. It is thought that the bees, bees from the other hives rob the colony and pick up mites that are carried back to the colony. Also, bees from the infected hive leave the hive covered with mites and inner foreign colonies spreading the mites. So I guess it, there's the effect of both. Colonies with low mite count numbers, even hygienic lines, can quickly be overcome by mites. All right, um, stocks with developmental adaptations. And I'll stop here. Well, I'm an, okay, one is a shorter brood cycle. Um, and there's a little bit on that. Um, and and that's often, that's one of the ways that the uh, Africanized bees deal with it. But this is the part... This is the part that's interesting to me because I believe it also connects to that uncapping capping, and that is suppressed mite reproduction. The mites fail to produce daughters. The survivor bees collected by the USDA in Baton Rouge were first called SMR, suppressed mite reproduction, because they were found, the mites were found in the cells without daughter mites. So there were mites, but they weren't breeding, which is a big deal. The only mites left in the cell were non-productive or sterile. Initially described as a mechanism of tolerance, this USDA Baton Rouge survivor stock was later renamed the varroa-sensitive hygienic stock. This happened when it was discovered that the mites with daughters had already been removed from the cell due to hygienic behavior once they started to reproduce inside the cell. The reproduction of mites triggers their removal by the bees. Mites that did not produce daughters were not removed. One of the scientists who work on this project, Dr. John Harbo, now retired from the USDA, works with his wife Carol to improve the VSH stock. They believe it has some mechanism of reproductive suppression at work. They continue to produce brooder queens, which they maintain and improve. And this is what I was talking in that earlier podcast about. It seems like um, 
they're kind of distinguishing that there's there's two aspects to um or, or, or there's two aspects with the varroa sensitive meaning the yanking out of the brood that are diseased or mite infested and then the suppressed mite reproduction what i'm reading about some things now not in this book in particular is the effect of of leaving of taking that capping off and putting it back on multiple times potentially affecting either the the oxygen levels or the humidity levels in that cell and causing the mites to reproduce less and so that's it seems like we'll probably read more in the future about those two things being seen as um, slightly different but both helpful um, uh, traits and then finally here's one then which is interesting I, I don't haven't read much about this this is called a gene for resistance varroa cannot biosynthesize Zone. I have no idea how to say this. I am very sorry. It is E-C-D-Y-S-O-N-E. Let me pause and look that up. Okay, I'm glad I paused and looked that up because it says it's pronounced ectazone. Ectazone, and so hopefully I won't have been saying it wrong, this whole text. All right, um, so since the early, them, this is reading again. Since the early years of Varroa in Europe, American-born Dr. John Kefis who is a fascinating guy, let me just say, has researched natural resistance in his commercial beekeeping operation in Toulouse, France. Maria Bolt now runs the program. Now, decades later, this stock has been shown to have a gene for resistance. Here is the abstract from the, their work with the bees. A gene for resistance to the varroa mite in honeybee. Pupa. Quote, the combination of a virulent parasite and relatively naive host means that without miticides, they, um, yeah, they say acaricides. I, th I believe that's miticides uh, in, uh, in American. <laughs> um, honeybee colonies typically die within three years of varroa infestation. A consequence of miticide use has been a reduced selective pressure for the evolution in the varroa res resistance in honeybee colonies. However, in the past 20 years, several natural selection-based breeding programs have resulted in the evolution of varroa-resistant populations. In these populations, the inhibition of varroa reproduction is a common trait. Using a high-density genome-wide genome-wide association analysis in varroa-resistant honeybee population, we identify an ectazone-induced gene significantly linked to resistance. Etazone both initiates metamorphosis in insects and reproduction in Varroa. Previously, using a less dense genetic map and a quantitative trait loci analysis, we have identified etazone-related genes at resistance loci in an independently evolved resistant population. Quote, Varroa cannot biosynthesize etazine but can acquire it from its diet. Using qPCR, we were able to link the expression of etazine-linked re resistance gene to Varroa's meals and reproduction. If Varroa co-ops pupil compounds to initiate and time its own reproduction, mutations in the host ecodyne pathway may represent a key selection tool for honeybee resistance and breeding. End quote. So, Lordy, okay, you see why it's good that people like Dr. Connor um, write stuff that's not directly out of the papers, because it's hard to read the papers. I always have to go consult my friend Susan, the statistician, about what, what, how, how they, what do they mean by that? <laughs> so that that is the selection 
um, and and that last part is not uh, represented representative of the rest of the book let me just say it's a very uh, easy read just you know you can just read it straight out you don't have to bog down like I did on that last um, part but that is pretty fascinating and on the subject of Dr. Kephas in the um, uh, treatment free beekeepers podcast series by Solomon Parker he has an interview with Dr. Kephas that is fascinating and um Dr. Kivas, if I'm not mistaken, is kind of the originator of the James Bond method, which was just, you know, you take take a thousand hives, don't do anything to them, and the five that live, you breed from those. Um, that may not be the exact literal truth, but that's the gist of, of the Bond method. And anyway, Dr. Kivas worked with that to the point that he calls his hives mite black holes like not only are they resistant but it he actually he actually went out to buy mite infested comb to introduce to these bees in order to keep them selecting and pressure because they had it handled so well which so this new that new information about about what the mutation that had developed or had i, I don't know if you call it developed survived maybe um that's pretty fascinating because that's the first I've read on what the mechanism was in Dr. Keefe's quite famous uh, bees in Europe. So um, that's the reading I wanted to share with you. And with that, I will wrap it up for today. I look forward to finding something else to share with you soon. Please email me anytime if you have ideas for things for me to talk about. It's blueridge714 at gmail.com. Again, blueridge714 at gmail.com. And then I'm also available on Facebook by the messages from the Five Apple Farm Bees, Honey, and More site on Facebook. And I'd love to hear from you. You guys have a great week. I'm appreciative for every single one of you.